Well, we continue this morning with our last name of Jesus that we find in Isaiah, the uh, ninth chapter, beginning with the sixth verse. And I'm just going to uh, read down to where the names are. It's Isaiah uh, 9, the sixth verse, beginning with six. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. The word in the words in Hebrew are Sar Shalom. The word Sar is the same word that uh, uh, they wound up getting Caesar from and Czar from. It's one who is a ruler, one who is uh, over all, one who is in charge. Shalom means peace, but it's not just uh, uh, an absence of conflict. It means being okay with your surroundings, with your God, just being where you're supposed to be in life. The head, the chief, the boss, the one who is in charge of peace. That is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, at this time of year, you may wonder, is that really so? Uh, some of you may not be experiencing much peace in your lives right now. You Even in church sometimes. A while ago, I watched Bobby have a unpeaceful moment as uh, she was standing there and she looked and the candle, the, the lighter had gone out. And she's, she just had this moment of unrest there as, uh, as, as I was watching. And then Scott came to the rescue and uh, got the lighter adjusted and everything was back on track because it had somebody here that knew what to do. And uh, Scott did it. And you know, that's kind of the way it is with the Lord in our lives. Whenever he is with us, you see, it's his presence. It's his presence that makes all the difference in the world. There's all sorts of unrest and everything going on in the world right now. There's, there's all sorts of things going on uh, all around uh, everywhere right now. And, uh, and so you may just wonder, you know, where's the peace? If he's the Lord of peace, why aren't I seeing any? Some of you, uh, it's hustle bustle trying to get everything ready because you've got people coming in. You've got floors to clean and dishes to wash and, uh, gifts to wrap and gifts that you haven't gotten yet. And oops, now somebody's come in that you weren't expecting to come. And here we go again. You know, there's all this stuff going on. And, uh, the thing is, is that the peace that the Lord talks about is a different kind of peace. He says over in the 14th chapter of, uh, of, of, of John, my peace I give you. Peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. There is a peace that can be ours 
even in the midst of unrest of nations, unrest in families, there's a peace that can be ours, and it comes from his presence. When the uh, angels announced the birth of Jesus, uh, whenever they uh, burst into song, uh, I love what they say there. Whenever they're announcing uh, his birth, they, uh, let me go, I'm trying to find it real quickly here. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, you know, we always think they're singing. They say this. They don't sing it. Have you ever noticed that? Okay. Saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Notice that he doesn't say peace to the whole world. And right now, you know, at Christmas time, this has been twisted where this always, it's time for world peace. You know, it's time to remember the world peace. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Uh, he also uh, said that uh, when there came close for his return, and here we are in Advent talking about his coming back, he said the closer that it got to his return, the more unrest there would be the more there will be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and pestilences and all sorts of things would be coming. And uh, so, but see, the thing is, is that even as these things are happening right now, we can read about the things that Jesus foretold would come right before he returned. We can read about them in the paper right now. And when we do so, we can have peace. And the reason why it's because the Bible is being proven true. And if one part of God's word is true, it's all true. And so uh, uh, instead of uh, striving to make nations get along with each other, we should be striving to bring people into the kingdom of God where they can know his peace and his peace. If we ever got to that point, then we would wind up with world peace because it is sin that keeps us from being at peace with one another. And it's not until the whole world surrenders to him that we're really ever going to have peace. We may from time to time under the heavy hand of someone have an absence of conflict, but we're never going to have peace until he comes back. But even in the midst of that, we can have peace knowing that his word is true. And so uh, that being the case, I want us to look, it says, peace on earth with men, among men with whom he is pleased. How do you please him? If you want his peace, you need to be pleasing him. So how do you do that? First of all, look over in John three sixteen, and we see the Christmas announcement basically tied in with what pleases God. If you're going to have to, if you're going to please God, the first thing that you have to do is this. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So the first thing, if we're going to be pleasing to God, is we have to believe in his son. We have to believe in Jesus not just some concept of God, 
But we have to believe in Jesus and why he came here and what he came here to do. And part of having faith in him is being willing to receive what he did on the cross as personally being for us, receiving that forgiveness and then living the life from that point on that he's called us to live. And that brings us to the second thing that we must do if we're going to please God and if we're going to know his presence and his power and his peace in our lives. And that is we must obey him. We must keep his commandments. We must be willing to do what he wants us to do. Jesus, as he was getting ready to leave, said, he who has my commandments and keeps them. Notice it doesn't say just know them. There are a lot, I've known people know the Bible backwards and forward, and they are just as mean as snakes. You know, uh, you, can, uh, you can know the Bible. You can know his commands. But do you keep them? When he says, forgive, do you keep that command? It's one of the strongest commands that we have from Jesus is to forgive those who commit offenses against us. And if we're not doing that, we're not keeping his commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him, will reveal myself to him. I've known a lot of people say, well, I've never had God speak to me. It's because they've never even taken the first step. They may be in church, but being in a barn doesn't make you a cow, does it? Being in church doesn't make you a Christian. Then he goes on. And uh, there was uh, another place where he said, uh, anyway, he goes ahead and he says that uh, his, his, that they, he and his father will come and make them and, and, and dwell in us. And he's going to do that through the presence of his Holy Spirit. With the presence of his Holy Spirit coming into our lives comes a peace that the world will never know. I remember the first time I experienced it, I realized that it wouldn't make any difference if I, uh, it was a point in time where my life was going to be different because I was going to be living my life for him. It was going to be very different from the way that I lived it before. The Lord had told me he wanted me to be a preacher. I was going to have to tell Sharon that. And it's going to be so different, I was afraid that maybe I would be committed to a mental institution because my it was going to be so different so quickly. And because of that, I mean, and, and as I was thinking about that, I thought, but if I wind up being there for you, then that means you will be there with me and that will be the place I ought to be and it'll be cool. And I realized then how people can be in prison and still be free, that bars don't keep you from Jesus, that uh, nothing can keep you from his presence and nothing can keep his presence from you. Now, you may think that other people can, but they don't have to. You know, there's some people, the only time they experience the peace of God is when they're sitting in the sanctuary. And I can remember when I was a little kid, I'd come into the sanctuary uh, on Sunday morning and it was just so good. And you just feel the presence of God with you. And maybe you take communion that morning and you just want to just take that feeling with you. 
and I'd go out and I'd get in the car and then something would go wrong. Somebody would do something. Somebody would say something. Somebody would sit across the line in the back seat of the car. You know, something would happen and it, it's just all out the window, you know. But the thing is, it wasn't somebody else's fault if I lost the peace that came from Jesus Christ. It's because my heart wasn't right. The thing is, he says, believe in him and do what he says to do. We will, if you love me, we will come and we will dwell with you. We will be in you. And then wherever you are, as you're doing what you know I want you to do, everything's going to be cool. That's it in a nutshell. There's a story that I discovered many years ago by Peter Marshall that I want to share with you that uh, pretty well sums this all up. Because you see him being the Prince of Peace, I will say this. Sometimes he will withhold his peace from you in order to get you on the right track. Sometimes he will, you will know his peace and uh, he will pull his peace back from you to help guide you back to where you should be and head in the direction you should be going. You know, Jesus, um, I'm, I'm sorry, David said, you know, I want your face to shine upon me, Lord. Uh, let my, let your countenance, do not hide your countenance from me. Don't hide your face from me, Lord. Because whenever his face was hidden, his presence was withdrawn. And so, uh, that being said, let me share this story with you. One bitterly cold December night when Washington, D.C. was covered with a blanket of snow and ice, a man sat in his comfortable home on Massachusetts Avenue, a crackling log fire through dancing shadows on the paneled walls. The wind outside was moaning softly like someone in pain, and the reading lamp cast a soft, warm glow on the book this man was reading. He was alone, for the children had gone out for the evening, and his wife had retired early. He read the following passage, When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends or thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen nor thy rich neighbors, but when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, that's from Luke 14th chapter. Somehow he could not get away from those simple words. He closed the Bible and sat musing, conscious for the first time in his life of the challenge of Christ, whose birthday was so near. What strange fancy is this? Why was it that he kept hearing in a whisper the words he had just read? He could not shake it off. Never before had he been so challenged. I must be sleepy, he thought to himself. It's time I went to bed. But as he lay in bed, he thought of the dinners and parties that they had given in this beautiful home. Most of those whom he usually invited were listed on uh, the, in the who's who in Washington. He tried to sleep but somehow he could not close the door of his mind to the procession of the poor that shuffled and tapped its way down the corridors of his soul. As he watched them pass, he felt his own heart touched. He whispered a prayer that if the Lord would give him courage, 
He would take him at his word and do what he wanted him to do. Only then did he find peace and fall to sleep. When the morning came, his determination gave him new strength and zest for the day. His first call was on the engraver who knew him well. At the counter, he drafted the card, chuckling now and then as he wrote, his eyes shining. It read, Jesus of Nazareth requests the honor of your presence at a banquet honoring the sons of want on Friday evening in a home on Massachusetts Avenue. Cars will await you at Central Union Mission at 6 o'clock. At the bottom of the card was the quotation, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A few days later, the cards of invitation in his hand, he walked downtown. Within an hour, there were several people wondering what could be the meaning of the card that a kindly, happy, well-dressed man had placed in their hands. One was an old man seated on a box trying to sell pencils. Another stood on the corner with a racking cough and a bundle of papers under his arms. There was a blind man saying over and over to himself, Jesus of Nazareth requests the honor of your presence. At six o'clock, a strange group of men stood waiting in the vestibule of the Central Union Mission. What is the catch in this anyhow, asked the cynic. What's the game? The blind man ventured to remark, maybe it's part of the government relief program. Just then someone came over and announced that the cars were at the door. Without a word, they went outside. There was something incongruous about it all. These men, clutching their thin coats, huddling together, their faces pinched and wan, climbing into two shiny limousines. At last they were all inside and the cars glided off with the strangest and most puzzled load of passengers ever carried. When they dismounted on Massachusetts Avenue, they stood gazing at the house. Up the broad steps and over the thick piled carpets, they entered slowly. Their host was a quiet man, and they liked him. These guests of his, whose names he did not know, he did not say much, only, I am so glad you came. By and by, they were seated at the table with its spotless linen and gleaming silver. They were silent now. Even the cynic had nothing to say. It seemed as if the banquet would be held in frozen silence. The host rose in his place. My dear friends, let us ask the blessing. If this is pleasing to the O Lord, Bless us as we sit around this table and bless the food that we are about to receive. Bless these men. You know who they are and what they need and help us to do what you want us to do. Amen. The blind man was smiling now. He turned to the man seated next to him and asked about the host. What does he look like? And so the silence was broken. Conversation began around the table and soon the first course was laid. 
It was a strange party, rather fantastic in a way, thought the host. His guests had no credentials, no social recommendations, no particular graces so far as he could see, but my, they were hungry. And he remembered back to the gatherings that he had seen Jesus at in the Gospels. He said they would be like this. Yet there was no trace of condescension in his attitude. He was treating them as brothers. It was a grand feeling, a great adventure. He watched each plate and directed the servants with a nod or a glance. He encouraged them to eat. He laughed at their thinly disguised reluctance until they laughed too. As he sat there, it suddenly occurred to him how different was the conversation. There was no off-color story, no whisperings of scandal, no one saying, well, I have it on good authority. They were talking about their friends in misfortune, wishing they were here too. Wondering whether Charlie had managed to get a bed in the charity ward, whether Dick had stuck it out when he wanted to end it all, whether the little woman with the baby had found a job. Wasn't the steak delicious? When the meal was over, someone came in and sat down at the piano. Familiar melodies and old songs filled the room. And then, in a soft voice, the pianist began to sing, Love's old sweet song, Silver Threads Among the Gold, The Sidewalks of New York. Someone else joined in, a cracked, wheezing voice, but it started the others. Men who had not sung for months, men who had no reason to sing, joined in. Before they knew it, they were singing hymns. What a friend we have in Jesus, the church in the wildwood, when I survey the wondrous cross. Then the pianist stopped, and the guests grouped themselves in soft, comfortable chairs around the log fire. The host, moving among them with a smile, said, I know you men are wondering what all this means. I can tell you very simply, but first, let me read you something. He read from the Gospels, stories of one who moved among the sick, the outcasts, the despised, and friendless. How Jesus healed this one, cured that one, spoke kindly words of infinite meaning to another, and what he promised to all who believed in him. Now I haven't done much tonight for you, but it has made me very happy to have you here in my home. I hope you've enjoyed it half as much as I have. And if I have given you one evening of happiness, I shall be ever for, uh, forever glad to remember it. But this is not my party. It is his. I have merely lent him this house. He was your host. He is your friend. And he has given me the honor of speaking for him. He is sad when you are. He hurts when you do. He weeps when you weep. He wants to help you if you will let him. I'm going to give each of you his book of instructions. Certain passages in it are marked, which I hope you will find helpful when you are sick and in pain, when you are lonely and discouraged. 
Then I shall see each one of you tomorrow where I saw you today, and we'll have a talk together to see just how I can help you most. They shuffled out into the night with a new light in their eyes, a smile where there had not been even interest before. The blind man was smiling still, and as he stood on the doorstep waiting, he turned to where his host stood. God bless you, my friend, whoever you are. A little wizened fellow who had not spoken all night paused to say, I'm going to try again, mister. There's something worth living for. The cynic turned back. Mister, you're the first man who ever gave me anything, and you've given me hope. That is because I was doing it for him, said the host. And he stood and waved good night as the cars purred off into the darkness. When they had gone, he sat again by the fire and looked at the dying embers until the feeling became overwhelming again that there was someone in the room, someone who stood in the shadows and smiled too, because some of the least of these had been treated like brothers for his sake. Well, he goes on, and as he continues at the end, he concludes, now this didn't really happen, but there's no reason why it couldn't. There's no reason why it shouldn't. What would it be like if we, whenever we were reading in the Bible, came to a place in the gospel where Jesus told us to do something and we stopped reading there and did not continue reading again until we had gotten up and done what he said to do? What a difference it would be. What a difference it would be here in Katy, in Seely, in Fulcher, in uh, Brookshire, in any of the places around here, if we would start doing what he said to do, just like he said to do it. What a difference it would make. And the biggest difference would be in your hearts as you sensed his presence with you and knew that he smiled on you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.